The time has come. I like that. The time is now for Victoria Stilwell's Positively Podcast. She's a world-renowned dog trainer. Seen enough dogs today, have you? She's the host of It's Me or the Dog. I'm coming to train you. Along with co-host Holly Ferfer. You don't play around with that name, do you? I am a fan of sweaty balls. She's Victoria Stilwell, and she's ready to go. This is a lovely way to start the day. You get the busy bit. I need to trim her whiskers. I see some poo here. I feel a little bit better now because I'm the only one who usually feels stupid during the podcast. Now, let's head to the studio and get this Positively Podcast started. I laugh every time between sweaty balls and poo. I mean, come on. Hello, Victoria. Hi. What kind of podcast is this? <laughs> exactly. We've gone to the dogs. When my Literally. mother listens to it, she goes, Oh, darling, what does sweaty balls mean? <laughs> we probably should change that. I think I want to take a stab at the uh, opening, redoing the opening. Because I, I, so. I have like Final Cut Pro on my computer. I could be like editor extraordinaire. I'm going to try it. If our producer will let me, I'm going to have a go at it. Okay. How are you? I'm very good. I've had the most <laughs> awesome four days, I have to say. For, for Oh, wow. Awesome four days. I just came back from Dallas. Did you? I just came, yes, I did. First of all, we shot... I, I got to rephrase this because I was I was doing stories for CNN. So when I say we shot at the sixth floor book depository, that's not really appropriate when you say, oh, yeah, I shot a story there because that's where uh, Lee Harvey Oswald shot out the window at uh, President Kennedy. So every time I kept saying to my photographer, could you get a shot of this out the window? And he kept looking at me like bad trip. But I didn't know what else to say. Could you film this? Could you film that? But um, I had never been there. I'd been to Dallas. It's been a while. But wow. I mean, it's amazing to me. Do you actually see it? And there's this really neat museum. Um, it's just very educational because, you know, you think about it, there's you know, people, I think just yesterday, some, one of the investigators died. They had an obituary in the paper. So, you know, those eyewitnesses and the people who had the photos who were there are starting to leave us. And so now it's going to become more of an educational tool versus a remembrance. Have you been? Yes, I have. I've been actually a couple of times. And the last time I took my mother and my sister there, I thought I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, going on the grassy knoll and behind yeah. a fence where potential second shooter was. And, oh, you're and, a conspiracy you know, whole, I'm totally conspiracy. <laughs> and seeing the X where he was shot, where the car was mm -hmm. on the street. I, I just think it was, it's a really well done museum. That grassy knoll, I was surprised. Like you expect this to be this big grass area, sort of like the mall in Washington, D.C. And it's really like maybe a 20 foot strip of grass. Yeah, it's really small. I was shocked too. I thought it was a much bigger area, but it isn't. It is, it is small. Um, but I, I would encourage people to go. If you're in Dallas, definitely go there. Oh, it's yeah. the most fascinating museum. A must-see. And there's so many things. I mean, I got to tell you, I really like the city of Dallas. I could find my... I could live in Dallas. I could be a Texan. I love horses. I love the steer. I don't eat cows. So I feel like they would like me there. And maybe not the cowboys or the cattle ranchers. Oh, I think the, the cowboys would like you there. Yeah. Ooh, you I think you go you. down well. <laughs> oh, yes. I would. I, well, actually, careful. I had a chance. I, I stayed there for about, I lived there for about, well, lived there, stayed there for about seven weeks because whilst oh. my husband, when he was acting, was playing Hank Williams. And uh, he stayed there. So I was a young mum then and um, oh. took time away from training and baby and I came out and stayed with him. And so I had a lot of time to sort nice. of integrate into life in Dallas. It was fabulous. And going to Fort Worth as well. Yes, Fort Worth and the cattle drives oh, and yes. all of that. But we also saw what's really amazing. I think it's fairly new. 2005, I want to say somewhere between 2003, 2005 is the Nasher Sculpture Center. Um, they have There was a Picasso, a Rodin, a Miro. I mean, they have these beautiful sculptures. And it's outdoors in the middle of downtown Dallas. Um, so we saw that. But... 
perhaps, you know, my favorite thing, and I've been dying to go to Dallas, dying to go, as we all know, uh, for one reason alone, and this really secretly was the reason of my trip. You know what it was? Oh, yeah. <gasps> yeah, Southwork, baby. Are you a Dallas fan? Huge. Okay. That was the only thing my mother used to allow me to watch on a school night was Dallas. So you went there, did you? Oh, yeah. I was like a oh. giddy school kid. My photographer, Stu, we were driving up, and I was like, hang on. I kept playing the theme song over and over again, and he, I was driving him crazy. But I have always wanted to see South Park, and you know, now that it's back on TNT and just as good, I am even more of a fan. And let me tell you, I could live in that ranch. It's very 1970s, but I could do it. I'm going to, if you haven't been to South Fork, I have some pictures that I took. It's not as big as you would think. It's kind of like if you've ever been to um, Elvis, you know, to Memphis, to Graceland, and you think this is it. That's kind of like that with, with Dallas, and they tell you all the secrets when you go through how the pool's really half the size and how they would make it look like it was this big pool and this big mansion. But it's so cool. It is tiny, isn't it? Oh, well, not tiny. As right. Houses but, go. but not but what you thought. Not what you thought at all. And, of course, because that was the only thing my mother allowed me yes. to watch, when we were in Dallas, she came. I took her to South Fork. Did she love it? Oh, loved it. We we all loved it. Was JR there when you went? Because when I went, he was not home. No, he wasn't home mm -hmm. either. <laughs> they're actually, believe it or not, if you're in the area and you're going to Dallas in the next couple of weeks, they're starting to film again. Uh, and it's going to come back. The second season's coming back in January. But what I did find out this time is versus the first time that they shot only really the exteriors there and then they shot the interiors in a soundstage in, in Los Angeles – but now this go around of the season, everything is being shot in Dallas. So they have sound stages in downtown Dallas, but they're also doing the exteriors there. So if you happen to be there, look around. Larry Hagman, I mean, all of them, you know, even the young hotties that are now in the show, um, they're all going to be scooting around the town. So I think I was a few weeks too early, but uh, I may go back. But at least you went there. At least you went yeah. to the ranch. That's fantastic. I'm very excited. So tip. But, uh, check mark off the bucket list. I went to Mount Rushmore and now I've done South Fork. Brilliant. So I'm on to the next. Love it. Well, I love Dallas as well. We've got three fantastic trainers there. Oh, you do? Are still positively dog trainers. Yes. It's Kath there's Catherine Breeden, uh -huh. who is awesome. And, um, she lives in Frisco, Texas, which Good is here. Okay. Wendy Deck from Canine Advanced Training Services and Barbara Godola with Distinctive Dog Training. So if you Perfect. need a positive reinforcement trainer, the creme de la creme, then and they're close to you. Great. Give them I a mean, call because they're fantastic. I love Dallas. Hey, Dallas people, I'm jealous of you. I love it. Anyway, so how are you? You were traveling and yours wasn't quite as fun as mine, but um, very interesting. Dad, you know what? Right? It was, it was, it was, it was fun. It was interesting. It was thought provoking. Mm -hmm. I spent three days in Detroit with Detroit Dog Rescue. Mm hmm. And I have to say, you, Detroit, you, you I lived there you for lived two and a half years. Yeah, yeah, lovely so people, you lovely city, but... Loved the city. I loved the city, and I know it's going through very hard times. It's been going through hard times for a long time, but even now with the economic downturn, it's suffering even more. But uh, I want to talk about that on the next podcast. Okay. Because I'd like to get Hush on, who is the director of Detroit Dog Rescue, okay. who I spent three days with. And, you know, I've seen things that I've never seen before. I saw things that I never saw before, and it was it was an incredible experience. So. But I want you to talk about because I know this week everybody uh, it was the uh, commemoration. I guess you can say remembrance of nine eleven. Yes. Um, you know, eleven years have gone by, which is amazing to me that it's eleven years. It seems like it was just yesterday. Um, but you you were there during all of that. I mean, you were actually yes. part of the 
I guess, recovery, I guess you would call it. Talk about what you did at 9-11. For those who may not know, you were involved. Well, I was working as a trainer in Manhattan. So I was living in midtown Manhattan when 9-11 happened. And uh, at that time, I was volunteering with the ASPCA. So the ASPCA had their section at the Family Assistance Center, which was this huge warehouse on Pier 94 on the Hudson River. And that was a huge warehouse where the Red Cross and various other organizations that were helping the families of the tragedy and also to find the victims were located. So my job was to organize the therapy dogs that would accompany the families on a boat that would take the families from Pier 94 down to the World Trade Center where the families could get off and there was a platform where they could overlook the rubble and remember the loved ones that they'd lost. And so for me to be sort of thrown headfirst into this incredible place and to witness such sadness, but also to witness what I can only describe as the miracle of what these animals can do for us. When people get onto the boat, you know, they are understandably very, very sad. It was very quiet. And then the dogs came on and the atmosphere kind of changed. People were, that were silent, were talking to each other. And if they don't want to talk to each other, they talk to the dogs and some of those dogs, they just knew when somebody was stressed, they would go up and put their heads on that person's lap. And I remember, I tell the story all the time of a little boy who lay on the ground with this black cocker spaniel and um, started playing with a spaniel. And he started smiling and his mum said, uh, you know, that's remarkable. That's the first time he smiled since his dad died. Oh. So, you know, for me, this whole this whole experience was really profound. And because the warehouse is huge, one massive wall of the warehouse was lined of all of the pictures of the missing. Mm -hmm. So thousands of people. And underneath it, the citizens of Oklahoma City had donated teddy bears. So not only was this wall lined with the pictures of all of those poor people who had died, there were teddy bears underneath. Because, of course, Oklahoma had experienced that terrorist attack a few years before and it was I got a chance to talk to a lot of families and chance to talk to the Red Cross and FEMA and the police and the fire department I was part of it and that experience will never leave me so I was extremely honored to be invited to speak at the launch of the working dog center of the Penn working dog center which happened on the morning of 9-11 2012 and the Penn Working Dog Center really uh, recognizes the importance of trained and skilled working dogs and obviously the unspoken bond between man and dog and the Penn Vet Working Dog Center was established in 2007 and it's the legacy of Dr. Cynthia Otto's close relationship with the working dogs who responded to 9-11 because she de she was deployed with these canine heroes to ground zero. And she's been monitoring their long-term health through the support of the American Kennel Club and Canine Health Foundation. Mm -hmm. Now the, the Working Dog Center has established um, this new program. And to breed, train and breed mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, all types of working dogs, um, mostly detection dogs, search and rescue uh, drug detection, bomb detection dogs. And it's going to be far-reaching because there's a real shortage of 
working dogs in the US and by establishing the center it's going to lead the way in responsibly breeding the best the healthiest most important dogs enhancing their success through a scientifically designed foundation tra- training program which is entirely positive reinforcement hmm. and I'm excited because Dr. Otto is going to be able to join us on the phone today Great. to tell us more about it but there I was standing in front of a lot of uh, very very important people talking to them about what dogs mean to in our lives and then I had the chance to not only have an amazing tour of the veterinary hospital there at Penn which is one of the top veterinary hospitals teaching veterinary hospitals in the country mm-hmm. but then also to talk to the students Wow. Yep, to the veterinary students there. And I had the greatest day ever. <laughs> I really did. Yeah. And this veterinary hospital is is incredible. They do all kinds of cutting-edge things. I mean, they have all sorts of equipment, MRI equipment, CT scans, wow. ultrasounds, exactly like you'd have for people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really, I just, I met some fantastic people there. So that's that's what I've been doing. That's amazing. And um, I know that I just want to let everyone know um, that your experience at 9-11, I know we've talked about this before. And um, when I do some fundraising, I know that always people say to me, well, what cause would you like that to go to? And I always say the Victoria Stillwell um, Foundation and you uh, accept donations because then you turn around and you donate that money to those who are training these dogs, helping these therapy dogs, helping the working dogs in small shelters, not small yes. dog shelters, but small comma dog shelters. Yeah. And we, we, we want to support assistance dogs programs, working dog programs, you know, uh, those unfortunately, you know, uh, that, uh, we, we will only donate to those who use positive reinforcement because unfortunately in this, in the working dog community mm-hmm. and in the, the uh, assistance dog community, there are still so many people that are training the dogs with punitive methods, which of course I don't agree with. So I'm not donating to that, but, um, Going back to the ceremony, what was great about the ceremony is that they were introducing the first group of puppies. And all these puppies are named after dogs that actually worked the scene at the World Trade Center and on Staten Island and at the Pentagon. And um, so the first new batch of puppies was given by their breeders to the new foster families. And um, puppies like Kaiser... Mm. Um, or Kaiser Rin, who is named after Kaiser, one of the working dogs, who's still alive and who I met. He's 14 years old. Wow. And then Morgan, Morgan's owner we're going to be talking to later as well, who is now, she's now 13, but Aww. she was deployed to the Staten Island landfill. Oh, interesting. And, uh, and then all of these dogs, Sirius, I think the, uh, the Labrador Sirius was, um, the, the pup was named after Sirius Lim, who was the only working dog that was actually killed Mm -hmm. during 9-11 and she was owned and handled by officer David Lim who I had the fortune to meet last year when I was in Manhattan and he gave me a pin uh, in Sirius's name to remember so now there's a little puppy Sirius who is going to carry on the legacy so I I mean can you imagine there was not a dry eye in the house you've got senators you've got politicians you've got this and that and we're all a blubbering mess (laughs) especially me (laughs) Oh, well, if you um, are interested in helping out the working dogs and uh, donating, then you can go to positively.com slash donate. And I know for a fact that that will go to help these working dogs and also to animal rescues all using positive reinforcement.
I used to be able to name every nut, and that used to drive my mother crazy. What planet is he on? That's like peanut, hazelnut. Yeah, but did you know macadamia nuts hazelnut. are toxic to dogs? Macadamia nuts. I'm absolutely amazed. Oh, and did you know this? During the Middle Ages, Great Danes and Mastiffs were sometimes suited with armor and spiked collars to enter a battle or defend supply caravans. Our next guest is Katrine Johnson, who I was honored to meet when I attended the um, ceremony for the Working Dog Center opening. And um, Katrine was deployed with her dog Morgan to the Staten Island landfill following the attacks of 9-11, and she's very kindly agreed to talk to us about her experiences today. So, Katrine, welcome. Thank you. Um, again, it was, it was amazing to see you. It was amazing to meet Morgan and to hear about what you guys did after 9-11, and I really would like our listeners to hear about your experience and to hear about the, really the incredible work that both of you did, because, I mean, even though the opening of the Working Dog Center was celebrating the dogs, you, the handlers, of course, are an integral part of that whole process. So could you tell us a little bit about Morgan um, and about the work that you do? I know that you're with the West Jersey Canine Search and Rescue, who I filmed with on its Meal the Dog a couple of years ago. Right. And... Um, and again, was very, very impressed with that. So if you could tell us a little bit about the work that you do and then, of course, now the work that you did after 9-11. Oh, okay. Um, well, let's see, a little bit about Morgan. Uh, Morgan's 13 now. Uh, she was just a little over two uh, when the when the towers were hit. Um, so she was one of the youngest dogs deployed, you know, to, for any of any part of the, um, you know, the efforts after after 9-11. She's uh, an English Springer Spaniel, and she's got one of the best noses I've ever seen. She's a she's got a, she's a great little scenting dog, and um, we were called to uh, to work at uh, Fresh Kills uh, to be deployed out there about um, two or three days after uh, the the towers were struck. They had come up with a plan to take all the rubble, all the debris from the whole tower area. What's now the footprint of um, the tower area that you can go and, and go and visit and see the memorial? They took all of that on barges. They put it on trucks first, then loaded it on barges, and then floated it over to Staten Island. Once it was at Staten Island, it was reloaded onto more big, huge dump trucks and carried up a long, winding road that went to the top of what had been the landfill years ago. It had been covered over and retired um, about a decade before. And so what exactly did Morgan have to do? What was her job? All right, when we, when we got there, her job was going to be to recover DNA samples. Everything that came from the towers, excuse me, was covered in a in a gray, gritty kind of silt. Uh, everything there was that color. Uh, it was a pretty surreal environment. And we were asking the dogs to locate uh, human remains as of whatever size they could locate for us so that we could test DNA samples and try to match those remains with people who were thought to have been in the towers that day. And so it was when... an effort to give families closure. When she would go through some of this debris, what would she do? What was what was she tasked to do when she found something? All right, Morgan's 
when Morgan found, finds anything, her, um, her immediate trained response is to put her foot on it. Oh. Um, and point to it with her, with her foot. That lets me know that this is the precise spot that she's telling me there's um, the scent of some kind of human decay. So uh, if she's further away from me where I might not see her, then she will leave the scent source, come back, and jump on me, that's a body bang, and then take me back to where she found something and put her foot on it. So... And that... Right, that 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 alerts you. So so, where did she find? Did she find human remains? Take us through that process. Oh, okay. What they had once they had brought a huge quantity of material from the tower area and piled it up at the top of the um, at the landfill. Then they brought in the dogs and they brought in um, huge earth moving equipment. They began to pick up scoops of the material that was in the pile. They picked it up in big front-end loaders, and they I had never seen moving equipment like this. Uh, if you stood beside the tire reached up, your hand would barely touch the top of the tire. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were huge machines and incredibly noisy, and there there had to be at least um, at least a dozen of those machines plus trucks and uh, whatnot going back and forth all over this area. There was a lot of, um, uh, you know, fumes coming from the trucks. There was a lot of noise from the engines and the beeping. It was an amazing environment to bring dogs into that had never faced a scenario like this. When they, when they, so would they remove some of the pile, spread it out, let the dog go through it, and then bring another bit of the pile, let the dogs go through it? How did, how did, how was she able to get into it? Uh, they would take the front end loader would go and pick up a big scoop from the pile. It would back up, move into position in a big in a cleared area that we were assigned to, and it would dump that. Then about a dozen people, um, which were police uh, and FBI primarily, because remember this is a crime scene. They're looking for clues, and they're also looking to identify any of the missing um, people by uh, ID cards or photographs or um, jewelry, so anything that could link. Uh, an individual to having been in the towers when they went down. So those dozen people would move in all dressed in Tyvek. They were all dressed in white with face masks on. And the dog handlers were also in, in Tyvek and all in white. And a dog, one dog handler for each pile and one assistant to come with the dog handler. There was so much noise you couldn't hear the machinery and you couldn't hear it coming towards you, so you needed someone to be a lookout to make sure that um, the dog and the handler were kept safe from the machinery that was moving. And that person carried a bucket, a five-gallon bucket. And we, we would work the dog through the pile while the 12 people were also looking through this big bucket load. And, then- and, if, and if the dog found something, when Morgan found something, she would put her foot on it. And to tell me she had found something, and that would go back into in the bu- that would go in the bucket, which went back to the forensic anthropologist to identify as to whether it was human or non-human. How how uh, how good was she at doing this? I mean, what were there some times where she would uh, indicate that there possibly could be something there, but it was difficult for you to find? Uh, yeah, there was because they when they dropped that bucket load, they tried to kind of whack it around with the bucket a little to spread it out but it was still it was still a, a pile and so we'd get Morgan would go in and try to um, she would find she would pick up the scent she would follow it as far into this pile of stuff as she could and it was it was pieces of twisted metal and and uh, 
chunks of concrete, rocks, all kinds of everything you can think of that could come out of buildings, along with all the garbage that came out too because there were uh, restaurants in there. So there's a tremendous amount of um, food in the pile as well. And the dogs bypassed it. She would go in and put her foot on, at, at one point it was on this large pile of rocks, and I'm talking something that was maybe like a three feet by four foot pile of rocks, and she said, right there. And I'm, I'm looking at it because the rocks all look the same. They were all kind of, there were smaller ones and bigger ones, but they were all covered with that gray silt. And the gray silt blended them so that, and smoothed edges, so it was really hard to tell what you were looking at. Um, I looked at Morgan, and she was sure she had her foot on that pile, and I'm like, okay. And I began to move the rocks, and I split them into two piles. And she stood there, and she waited, and she watched. And, and I looked at her, and I said, where? And she went over and she sniffed one pile of rocks, went over to the other pile and said, bang, it's this pile. Put her foot right on it. I subdivided that pile. And I subdivided those piles. And eventually we got down to a pile of rocks that was like the, oh, about a, a foot square by, a, you know, by about a foot high. And at that point, she went over to the pile, that little pile, put her foot on it, and then looked at me because she realized <laughs> uh, how, you know, how much I was struggling to try to get her to where it was. And she very carefully reached into that pile of rocks. And with her, just with her incisors, she pulled out one round rock. And it was a couple inches in diameter, almost. And she dropped it outside that pile, and she put her foot on it, and she looked at me with it. This is the one. This is the one. You don't have to keep dividing. This is it. And we put that in the bucket and sent it back to the uh, forensic anthropologist. And the person who was was my runner for that day, Tyler Simons, came running back with a new bucket, an empty bucket, and said, um, "Yeah, that was a um, that was the head of a femur." So she was able to sort to that degree. And it wasn't, and not just Morgan. All the dogs. They were doing something they had never done before, facing this immense pile of debris and and all the cacophony that went with it, um, the noises, the the sounds of all the seagulls that were trying to get to the restaurant residue, and um, they were screaming. There was a cannon going off trying to keep the seagulls away so that the people and the dogs and the machinery could work. Um, it, was, uh, it was a tremendous, it, it should have been, I would have thought, sensory overload for the dogs. How many days did she? How many days did she do this? Did you guys work together through this rubble? How long did it take? We worked there um, off and on for about a month, and I'm saying off and on because initially there was a huge response. Everybody, will you remember? Everybody wanted to do something, and so there were people with dogs that, with well-trained search dogs, got in their trucks. You know, out in the Midwest, out in, I remember Illinois and I, I think it was uh, Tennessee, got in their trucks and they just started driving. And they got there and said, I'm here. I can stay for a while. What can I do? And when and if they arrived at Fresh Kills, um, you know, we just had this large group of people that all wanted, to, were more than willing to work. And the people that had gotten at the handlers and the uh, folks that were in charge got together and talked about it a little bit, and the consensus was to work the folks that lived the furthest away first with their dogs, max out their time so that they could, um, you know, and then use our local dogs 
to fill in behind them and then pick up as soon as they left. We would start filling in more and more with the local dogs. So the local dogs put in, um, you know, anywhere from five days to, you know, 15 or 20 days working there. You, and we would go in, even if it was an hour or two hours or something like that, if they had a shift available, one of us would be able to go in and do that shift. And you had mentioned, Katrine, that um, you guys had masks on and you were wearing suits, but did the dogs have any protection? Because we now know the health implications of that rubble and what was in there and how many people, especially first responders, have since become ill. Was there any kind of protection for the dogs? No, nothing. They had, they did not have, there was nothing for the dogs. And the first responders, the, the handlers and one had the, the Tyvek on, they had, um, and they had like shot masks. So, you know, got some protection there, but the dogs, no. So are the dogs, I mean, are they all that you know of okay after this? I mean, maybe they had different responses than we do because they were obviously face first into this, into the debris. Yes. And their noses were right into it. Mm-hmm. They were right up against it because they're they're you know they're sniffing in as as much as they can, much scent as they can. So yeah, their noses were right in there. Um, to to the best of my knowledge, and Dr. Otto is the person to ask because uh, bless her heart, she ran a huge study on the on the search dogs of 9/11, and with control groups and a, a really nice right. a really nice um, uh, study on the dogs. And as far as I know to date, the dogs are not seeing any. Um, repercussions from their work at 9-11. The dogs that have died, and a number of them have because of the time frame we're talking mm-hmm. here. You know, it's been 11 years. A lot of them have, but they have died something that would be appropriate right. for their age and breed. You, you mentioned, and, you know, we talk about the, the, the physical health, but what about the emotional health of, obviously, you and the dogs? I mean, you're right there with them. You're going through what they're going through, and we know that dogs have emotions like we do. Emotionally, how did it affect, affect you both? Emotionally, oh, first thing, so glad to be there with the dog. Um, and this, this, I think, for me, one of the most touching parts of this was that with everybody in Tyvek, all that gray ash all over the place, and the machinery, everything was, had gotten covered in gray as they were moving things around and stirring up dust. The only thing that looked like it should look like were the dogs. They were so real. They, against this gray background and all the white the people were in, there are the dogs, black, white, um, you know, golden, golden retrievers, the beautiful golden coats, you know, the beautiful, the shepherds. They were real, real, real. And it was the only thing there that, that felt like normal to the people that were working. And what we saw was we had a canine tent set up. We'd go back and, you know, rinse the dogs off and get them something to drink and get in the shade and cool off. Um, and there was also one for people at the very beginning. And what we saw was that when dog handlers went to take their dogs for breaks, they'd go back to the tent, the canine tent, and flip a bucket up and to sit down with their dogs who got a chance to rest and get a drink. And within moments, you would see other workers that had, were going out and working those piles begin to take a break too. And there would always be three or four that sort of wandered over to the canine tent, not over to the people tent. And they would want to sit with these dogs. And they'd start talking to you about, you know, about your dog and about about the dogs they had as kids. And they'd pull up a bucket and they would sit down. And they would start to reach out for the dogs that were there. And every dog, whether they were trained as a therapy dog or not, 
got up and would walk over to each of those people and spend time with them. Mm. I remember um, I was speaking to um, uh, Kaiser's owner, Tony Zintzmaster, who was yes. deployed with Indiana Task Force 1 to the World Trade Center following the attacks of 9-11. Um, and he was there at the uh, ceremony as well. And he was saying that there would be workers that would just come up and um, just hug his dog. Yeah. They wouldn't say anything to him. They would just come up and mm-hmm. hug the dog because that's what they needed. And he was mm-hmm. he was working um, at the actual, uh, at Ground Zero. So, uh, you know, not only were these dogs doing an incredible service by finding human remains, but they were also keeping the humans sane and able to carry on as well. Um, how How long did... Morgan have to train for this prior to 9-11? Um, she had been in choosing training. I got her at nine weeks, and we have videos of her at about nine and a half weeks doing her first little puppy runaways with a little tiny, tiny search vest on. Uh, so she started as a, as a puppy, and she trained um, as a wilderness dog and as a, as a cadaver dog for human remains. So, so she's, not, she's not lifeline, she's cadaver. She did. She oh, in her in her heyday, she did both. Okay. She was. She was most uh, back in the day. We're going back a lot of years. Um, but most dogs were trained as wilderness dogs. They to go out and look for a lost person in in woods and fields, and that was their big use. Uh, when you found a subject, there was no guarantee that the person would be alive. And what we found was that the wilderness dogs would locate somebody whether they were alive or they were deceased. And so how is Morgan today? Morgan's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's, uh, she's living um, the comfortable life now. She's done her duty and she's in retirement, sort of, you know, enjoying retirement years. Well, wouldn't you think? Um, but, uh, <laughs> but not, no. Um, what makes her happy, what makes, well, you see that sparkle in her eye is when she gets a chance to do a job of some kind. Oh. She loves it. And, uh, as a matter of fact, that's uh, we've started a little uh, an organization that's to help the detection dogs and the wilderness dogs that have to retire to give them jobs of after their retirement. And uh, so right now she's also she's learned to uh, how to chase geese, and uh, which was a no brainer for her. She's a springer, and they're bred to make geese fly. She thinks that's awesome, and uh, to locate goose nests. So she's a happy camper. She will go out in the spring and locate goose nests uh, so that, you know, we can we can do egg addling and that kind of thing. Good for and, her. Uh, Katrine. Yeah. Uh, no, it's an emeritus. Understand, for her, it's an emeritus. <laughs> so she goes well out. Well deserved. Absolutely. She's got a younger sister and uh, a nephew here, and so they are, they are the ones that it's, that it's a job for. But from, Morgan goes out and, and does her fair share. And, you know, if she's got a slower day, she does a little less, but it's still more than her fair share. You know what? She was such a star, and it was just a pleasure to meet her. What a friendly dog. It was a real pleasure to meet you too, Katrine. And thank you for the work that you did um, and continue to do in helping people and helping families get closure. I think that uh, your sort of your stories aren't told that often, and um, I really want on this podcast to be able to tell them. So thank you so much for spending the time and joining us. And um, we're going to put Morgan's picture up on our website. So if you want to take a look at Morgan and uh, Katrine together, mm-hmm. please go to our website. And um, 
on this episode, you'll be able to see pictures of the opening ceremony of um, the Working Dog Center and also the wonderful hero dogs of 9-11 and the new puppies that, of course, one of the puppies is named after Morgan. And this is going to be one of the puppies now that's going to be trained uh, at the Working Dog Center. So very excited to see their development. Thank you, Katrine, so much. It was an honor, Katrine. Okay, thank you both. Hey, Victoria, give me a fascinating furry fact. The aggressive bark is... Uh, thanks for that, I guess. I know what you're thinking. Get crazy people, crazy dog. Did you provoke her? What did you do? Come on, did you pitch her or something? Got anything else? A puppy's eyes do not open until it's 10 to 15 days old. Its vision is usually not complete until it is about four weeks old. Who knew? And speaking of puppies, um, I know that Dr. Cynthia Otto, um, you were talking about, you spent some time with her earlier at the um, Penn Vet Working Dog Center. She's just gotten, you talked about the new puppies you got to meet. That's awesome. Um, So I want to hear more about that. Should we uh, get Dr. Otto on the hotline? Let's do it. All right. The Positively Hotline is ringing. We don't know what we're going to do. We have no plan. We're just here. Who's calling in this week? He went after her like she's made out of ham. That is interesting. That's exciting. Um, is somebody going to answer that? Hello? Hotline ringing. You're on your phone, and I don't think you're taking any of this seriously. Into the phone! Ladies and gentlemen, let's go! And uh, let's go to our Positively Hotline right now. We have Dr. Cynthia Otto, the Executive Director of the Penn Vet Working Dog Center. Welcome, Dr. Otto, to our podcast. We're glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the center, uh, what, you're, what you're doing there. So the Penn Vet Working Dog Center is a really unique center because it combines multiple different aspects of uh, dog training, uh, professional working dogs, research, education, and what we're trying to do is look at the methods that we're using to raise and train detection dogs in this country, collect all the information possible so we can then improve on that and share that information with other organizations so that we can somehow begin to address the shortage of working dogs that we have in this country. And how... I mean, how short are we on working dogs? It's really hard to give an absolute number of how short we might be, but what we know is there are over 10,000 and maybe as many as 40,000 working dogs in this country, and actually even some estimates go higher, and we know every year about 10% of those dogs retire, which puts us into somewhere between a thousand and four thousand dogs that need to enter the programs every single year. Now, a lot of those dogs are actually being acquired from Europe, um, and the problem there is that there's a lot of demand for those dogs, and so uh, we're not able to get the high quality dogs, the healthy dogs that that used to be they used to be known for. Um, and so, we really are looking to have dogs that we raise, we train here using domestically produced dogs. How would you know if you had a working dog, a dog that potentially could help in in these kind of situations? I mean, obviously a lot of us are dog owners. I've rescued dogs. I've gotten puppies. How do I know that this might be a good breed to train as a working dog? 
Well, I think there's a lot of different aspects, and I think that an individual dog, um, particularly a rescue, may be a great working dog. The problem we have with some of our rescues is we don't know their history, and when we're looking at health and we're looking at behavioral performance, one of the best predictors is what their parents did. Um, And so what our program has done is we have taken dogs that have been donated from established breeders with health and performance performance histories in their dogs. Um, but uh, going back to how would you know if your dog was capable, the behavioral aspects of a good working dog, particularly what we're talking about here are detection dogs, dogs that search to find things. It would be the typical dog that you would throw a ball for and it would bring it back 600 times, even after you're tired, and then you would throw it in the tall grass and it would look and look and look until it found it and it wouldn't come back until it found it and then it would ask you to do that another 600 times. That's what we're looking for in a working dog. That sounds like Holly's hound I that do. she has. I have a black and tan coon hound and he will play ball until he just can't walk anymore. That's it. And then we call that drive and that just, that persistence, that willingness and the, the joy that they get out of finding that or even the search itself can be very rewarding for these dogs. And what you probably noticed is that if you're not giving your dog something interesting to do or having them find something, they tend to find things or find their own interesting things to do because these are very active both mentally and physically. Now, so, for instance, my dog, though, he'll be six years old this year. Um, Is it too late for him to be a working dog? Is it too late to train him? How long is that training process, and how long usually is is their, you know, uh, life as as a search dog? Well, particularly the search and rescue dogs, um, which are the dogs that I've worked the most with, although I have worked quite a bit with um, various uh, military dogs and and other police dogs and and other groups that are, are using detection dogs, But usually the training is going to take about a year to 18 months. Now, it depends on what kind of background they had. So a six-year-old dog um, may actually come along quite quickly, particularly if it's already a hunting dog or if it is already uh, trained to some degree with its obedience and its ability to work independently. Um, But it it wouldn't surprise me if it took a year um, of, of really focused, Effort And if you're doing this as a, a hobby on the side as opposed to full-time, no doubt it will take at least a year. Most of the dogs will work until they're maybe 9 or 10. Some dogs will work a little bit longer. And, and one of our goals of really enhancing their, their health and their fitness is to make sure that these dogs can continue to work as long as possible in, in the healthiest way possible. Now, you have the first group of puppies, and um, you're beginning to work with them. Are those... The pups that I can hear in the background. <laughs> they are the they pups are. that you can hear in the background. <laughs> they, are, they are ready to go. So tell me exactly how are you, what's going to be the general day for these puppies? They're in foster homes, aren't they, during the weekends and at night, but then they're bought, it's almost like they're bought to school during the day with you. Right. right. We're almost calling it a prep school or a foundation school or even, you know, puppy college because they're really learning a, a ton of stuff and even today their very first day here a lot of their time was just spent going for walks but we'd pull them out of their their crates where they're they're getting used to being comfortable and resting um, and we would do some tugging games and we would play around and and let them climb on different objects that we have in the center and mostly it's just play and and getting them happy and comfortable in this environment 
Now, uh, they are now with foster families. They are currently all with their foster families. They, they were, met their foster families yesterday and went home with them last night. <laughs> and so all their foster families dropped them off this morning and wished them well on their first day of school. And it was, it was really <laughs> just a sweet day here. And I have to say, they were so cute. Aww. I mean, I met all of them and they were just, I wanted to take them all, all back. I think my husband would kill me if I'd, uh, if I'd have turned up with all of these dogs, but they were absolutely gorgeous. And, uh, how long is it going to really take until you get to the dogs to the point where they can and start working? Well, we anticipate the program will be a year long. Now, during that year, they're going to advance to a really incredible stage. We believe that once they're at that point, and it may, it may only be nine or ten months of training and they could potentially be ready, but we also want them to be physically and mentally mature. Um, and so that year of training will be a gradual increase in our expectations, but always making this the best game ever. So that this is something that they are just so excited to do, that when they do go out and work, they've already been exposed to all sorts of different environments, um, and nothing in the world is better than them finding um, their toy, which will eventually be associated with an odor of whether it's a bomb or drugs or, or whatever their final job is going to be, um, they will be prepared for that. And what I love about your program is that you're training these dogs, you're teaching these dogs using positive reinforcement methods only. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, I'm a very big believer in um, positive reinforcement training because, again, these jobs have a, these dogs have a really hard job, and what we want them to do is love that job. And one of my my concerns is that if a dog is is compelled to do something, when things get tough, that dog is going to either not perform at the level that we need them to, or it's just going to shut down completely. Um, and what we're going to be doing, the really great thing about what we're doing is we're collecting data. We're collecting data every day on these dogs, how they're responding, what they're doing, and that way we can actually document their progress. We can document how they respond, and we can really provide some evidence and some, some support that we can share with other organizations to show them how this works, or if there are pieces and parts that we have to, to look at again in a different light, you know, is there anything that we need to do differently? But but truly, there's a great inspiration um, in um, a trainer called Bob Bailey, who has done an amazing job, um, particularly with the military dogs in, in Europe mostly, but some here in the U.S. as well, with positive training and getting these dogs to just work phenomenally and, and get to that point you know, quite quickly. See, I've had various discussions with certain people who say that, oh, you know, positive reinforcement works fine with companion dogs, but my gosh, dogs with big drive, they need a harder hand. What do you say to that? Um, I don't believe that, and until um, I'm proven wrong, I'm going to continue to work on this with that positive approach, and I'm, I'm suspecting that, um, especially given my experience with Bob Bailey and, and his knowledge, that we will be able to succeed without having to change our methods. Yes, you see, I think, uh, I, I, you know, I know Bob Bailey's work very well as well and the work that he's done, and I think a lot of people are surprised that it doesn't matter whether you have a, a, a a military dog or a police dog or any kind of working dog um, that you can use positive reinforcement just because it's a military dog or a police dog doesn't mean you have to yank and crank them and, and use all kinds of punitive methods in order to get them to, to do their job. I think it's, in fact, the, the other way is much, much better. You're actually creating a team through cooperation, aren't you? That That's what you need to oh, have. And, yeah. 
Absolutely, Victoria. It's the relationship, and, and we really want to build that, not not just the relationship with an individual, but with all people, so that all people represent a very positive relationship for these dogs, and, and, and we're really excited about that. I, I was working with some of the, the police dogs locally and, and really having a, a great time just showing them with positive reinforcement how this dog who wouldn't release um, his tug was very quickly very happily offering me up his tug so that he could play again. And it was it was just a really fun experience to, to have this dog who who hasn't had the degree of positive reinforcement. And they do some reward-based training quite a bit, but there still is some of the more traditional training involved. And so now these dogs started today. What, uh, what Where will they go? Where will they be placed when they're finished with their training? What happens to these dogs? So at the end of the year, what they will do is they will move into an advanced training program. They may be sold, they may be donated, they may be sponsored by an organization so that they can go into that advanced training. Some of that advanced training will happen here um, with us, and others will happen in the different organizations that then want to um, take on our dogs um, and, and use those dogs um, in their programs. And then once you collect all the data as far as, you know, how well these dogs do and you're looking for certain markers in dogs, what will you do with that information? Um, So uh, the data is going to be a very long-term project because we want to look at not only the immediate outcome but the long-term outcome. So even these dogs that go into other agencies, we will follow them. Um, But we're really looking at the genetics um, and the behavior and the physical um, components and how can we make that a whole package so that we can develop breeding programs, that we can look at the genetics of dogs maybe even that are in shelters that would, you know, genetically be predisposed to be successful. Um, Because our current shelter screening programs are unfortunately... um, very low yield. Um, some some organizations are screening up to a thousand dogs before they can find a single dog that'll be successful in their program, and so we want to be able to help facilitate that with all of the knowledge that we're building. And I want to ask you specifically about the dogs um, once they go out to become working dogs. We just commemorated the the anniversary, the 11th anniversary of 9-11, and we know that a lot of those dogs, they worked uh, very hard, very long hours going through the rubble of the Twin Towers. Um, Physically on those dogs, you know, how, how will... How do they handle that? And also emotionally, um, obviously we know dogs feel like weight. We do. How do you sort of prep them for, for those, those moments? Well, I think that's a great question, and we actually have quite a bit of data on the both behavioral and physical um, consequences of the, the 9-11 response because I've been following those dogs now for 12 years. Um, and the dogs physically did remarkably well. Really, um, we're having a hard time identifying any physical um, consequences um, of their response to 9-11. The behavioral aspects are also really encouraging. We didn't see any evidence of post-traumatic stress disorder, um, anything like that that we, we were concerned in the group. There may have been an individual dog here and there that, that people were, were feeling that their dogs were responding, but what we what we also found is that the dogs that did have some behavioral changes were often um, associated with handlers who were having some emotional or psychological difficulty. So, if a handler was calm during the search and was calm during the work that those dogs did, then the dogs are more likely to pick up that feeling from their handler. 
and take cues and confidence from their handler. Is that what you're saying? I think what we're talking about is the bond. And the working dog and, and the handler have such an incredible bond, and the dog reads the handler um, and responds to that handler's emotion, that handler's stress, um, and it responds in various ways. And, and oftentimes um, what what we think based on the study that we just published is that, that there is that link. We don't know which comes first. You know, is the dog responding and then that's causing anxiety in the handler? We suspect it's probably the other way around, but we, again, in, in the study that we did, we can't prove which which of those behaviors came first, the, the handlers or the dogs. And uh, one last question for you. Um, when you have some of this research and you're starting to get back some of the some of the results, how can people find this in case they want to either foster or raise or get involved somehow in training working dogs and having a working dog? Um, I think that's a great question, and, and one of our missions is education. Um, our We have a lot of information available on our website, www.penvet.org. I'm sorry, penvetwdc.org. Um, but we also hold conferences and um, we do various uh, seminars uh, for people to learn more about uh, what's happening. Our, our conference is happening in April of 2013 in St. Louis, the PenVet uh, Working Dog Conference, and the information is available excuse me, on our website. So that's definitely a, a start to get the information. We'll be uh, sharing this information both in the, um, the scientific literature but also in the lay literature because it's really important for us to, to get the information out so that our dogs can be more successful. It was an honor to meet you yes, uh, the other day. It was an honor to to meet the dogs, to see the incredible program that you, you're building. Um, thank you for inviting me. And, um, you know, I think working dogs need to sort of, and the handlers need to set the example for the rest of us because it's certainly in the way they train, using humane methods. If you've got the working dog community using humane methods, that's going to filter down well to those of us who have companion dogs. Uh, do you think that that is, um, do you think I'm right in saying that? Um, I think that, that absolutely the, the working dogs are sort of like looking at professional athletes and how we look up to them. And, and we really anticipate that the things that we do with the working dogs are, are going to set the standard for what we can achieve with our own personal dogs, but also for how we should, you know, how we should move forward and be the most successful with them, whether they're pets or they're, they're actively working in these professional careers. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cynthia Otto. We appreciate you, the Executive Director of the Penn Vet Working Dog Center. We definitely will check out the website, and, and we will uh, keep up and monitor the new pups. We're so glad they had a good first experience at their first day at kindergarten, and we look forward to seeing them graduate. That's great. Thank you. And please, please let your audience know that this is all funded on donations, and we would love their support um, in any way possible. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cynthia. Okay. Thank you. Hey, you got something on your mind? What are you, a wizard, a genius? How do they make a miniature? I mean, is there some way, some process, they, they physically miniaturize the dog, or is it a puppy, or what, what the devil is going on? That's a really good question. I've got my work cut out for me here. Next time you want to know something, can you repeat the yes. question? Why don't you ask Victoria? She's the expert with this kind of stuff, you know. Uh, you obviously don't know my dog. Just ask Victoria.
All right, let's just ask Victoria. Let's open the mailbag here. By the way, if you have any questions, you can always email Victoria uh, at podcast at positively.com or at positively.com slash podcast. That's our show page. You can see everything. If there's other questions that have already been answered, uh, you can go there. Um, Victoria knows everything, everything, everything. 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 Okay, let's start with uh, Angela Burkett from Pennsylvania. Uh, She wants to know, she says, my four-year-old Shih Tzu will nip at or reach for defensively anyone that's near him when he has a treat or a bone, with the exception of me. My husband has even made it a game because he's so lovable the other 99% of the time. It's so out of character for him, but it's time to put an end to his nippy nonsense. Uh, That's from Angela in Pennsylvania. And I think that, I know what you're going to say, Victoria, because that's a little more than just fun and cute in a game. That's an issue. Yeah, yes. Uh, First of all, you need to train your husband. (laughs) This ain't a game. That's another podcast. Your, Your dog is telling you to back off. And this is typical resource guarding. So Mm -hmm. what can you do about it? All right. First of all, take it seriously because it might be one thing for your husband. But if you ever have any children around, nephews, nieces, you have kids yourself, doesn't matter if you ever have any kids around and that kid goes to try and take your dog's bone or toy, then that child could get bitten. So it's something you do have to take seriously. First of all, I will say management. Training is part management, part actually teaching the dog. So manage the situation by never allowing the dog to have an object like a a treat or bone that it's going to guard. So which sounds strange, right? But until the behavior is under control, you don't allow it. Right. And the only time you do it is when you begin to teach. Mm -hmm. Now, first of all, I start with low value. So what is a low value toy or treat to your dog? And I teach a dog to trade. So, for example, if there's a chew, so I do a lower value chew. You've got to find out what your dog loves the most. There are going to be some stuff like, let's say your dog loves a great meaty bone, but it doesn't really like a nylon bone. You know those nylon bones Mm -hmm. you can buy for your dog to chew. It likes them, but it's not the greatest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Then I would start with a nylon bone. Mm-hmm. and I would get maybe four or five nylon bones, and I would give a nylon bone to the dog. And then after the dog's chewed on it for about a minute or two, then I would produce another nylon bone, this exactly the same one, and start really focusing and concentrating on that nylon, nylon bone in front of the dog. Mm. So then the dog begins to go, Whoa, what, what's so interesting? What have you got there in your hand? As it drops the bone that it has in its mouth, you say, drop it. As you give the dog the bone that you have in your hand, you say, take it. So now you're going to establish a verbal cue for both dropping the bone and taking something in its mouth. You are, in a way, you're creating a game of a different sort. So then dog is now chewing on the second bone that you gave it. Because now you have the first bone. You were able to remove the first bone. Takes a while and chewing maybe for a minute or two on the second bone. Then you produce another bone from behind your back. And you start playing with that. And the dog goes, what have you got in your hand? (laughs) It drops the second bone from its mouth to come and get the third bone. As it drops it, you say, drop it. And then you say, take it. Do you see where I'm going with this? It's the trade game. And then when the dog is really good and dropping it and taking it, 
on command, on cue, that's when you start to up the value. So you start with something of low value and then do higher value. Basically, what you're saying is, I'm not going to be a threat to your toy or your bone. Resource guarding is very normal. And it's all to do, it's not to do with dominance. Lots of people think when their dogs are resource guarding things from them. It's not to do with dominance. It's the dog fears loss of comfort, safety, security, and something that they might need for survival. Chewing on a bone makes them feel good. You're about to take that bone away from them. They're going to lose that good feeling. Chewing on the bone is giving them nourishment and food if it's a meaty bone. You're going to take away that, maybe compromise, compromise their survival by taking away their food. I always use it, the sort of the analogy, what it would be like if the dog suddenly came and took something from your mouth. Right, like so, so you were eating a hot fudge sundae and the dog took it, you'd be quite upset. But God if he forbid. came and gave you a glass of red wine, you might go, take the chocolate, I'll take the wine. Yeah, you bet. That's exactly what it is. And as I always say, it's attempting a bloodless coup. So without the dog realizing it, you're actually teaching the dog, you know, actually, when she comes up to me, when I do have something in my mouth, she's not a threat to me. I get something good. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes then I vary it. I'll do, the ni- I'll do the the nylon bone and then I'll produce something even better from behind my back. That's the sort of the second step that, oh, oh my gosh. So when actually if I drop this, I'm going to get something that I like even better. And then if I drop that second thing, then I'm going to get something I like even better. And you gradually build it up to the meaty bone, which is the creme de la creme. Um, if you want a trainer, because I think you've got to go very slow with these, this resource guarding. You make and you've time. got to know what you're doing. So any kind of aggression issue or anxiety issue, I think it's really wise to get a trainer in to help you. I have two great VSBDT trainers in Pennsylvania, Sandy Wishnick and Melinda Berger. And if you want to find out where they are, please go to positively.com slash trainers and get them to help you. Because I think with a situation like this, get a professional in to help you get the situation under control pretty quickly. But do it in a non-confrontational way. The more confrontational you are with your dog, the more confrontational you are, the more that's going to exacerbate that Mm -hmm. desire to resource guard. Make it a game, you change the whole idea for the dog. You make it, oh, fun, instead of fear. All right, now here's a question all the way from... Tatura, Victoria, Australia. Oh, I love that. James. James uh, says he rescued a four-year-old Alaskan Malamute about 12 months ago. It was evident that this dog led a pretty terrible lifestyle before we got her. So using your training methods, she's become the most well-behaved pooch we can hope for. But she won't play with anything. So he says, help. You know, some dogs just... They don't know how to play. And again, you've got to ask what happened in, in that dog's life before mm-hmm. they rescued her. There are some dogs that just don't know what play's about. They've never had the chance to do so. They've either been in abusive environments or they've never had any toys to play with or they're just not play-driven. And you know what? That's fine. When we get dogs, we, we think, oh, they must be sociable. They must play. Mm. They must love all other dogs. They must want to sleep in our beds. They must, you know, and, and sometimes... They're just, that's not what motivates them. It's like my husband. I say, let's go to a, look at this. There's a festival. It's the, you know, whatever art festival. And he, I don't want to go to that. But, you know, just on that note, same with my husband. So whenever you want to go to a festival, I am way into it. (laughs) So please, they can watch football. 
Ugh. So that that's good. So maybe James, if you want to play with a dog, maybe your neighbor's got a dog you can play with and let and leave your dog to just chill. But you can, you can. I mean, for other dogs, I'd say mm-hmm. maybe you're just not using the right motivator. For example, I had one dog that just didn't want to play with anything. This dog was a Labrador Retriever. Mm-hmm. That's and surprising. Then it was surprising. But then I produced a the most the 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 most lifelike rabbit toy that I've ever seen, and I put a little bit of rabbit scent on it. Oh, and that was it. Wow, the dog just went nuts, and we played tug, and we played all kinds of things. So you know what? So maybe find what the dog likes and what kind of a a toy. I mean, maybe it's throwing the ball, or maybe it's yeah. Fantastic. That's Good it. to know. Okay. okay. And then worst case scenario, the dog doesn't want to play, then you just have yeah. snuggle time and yeah, quality take it time a walk. and a walk. Yeah, Do other exactly. things. Do other things with your dog. Okay. Um, let's get one more question here. And because, you know, um, I have a 15-year-old cat, George, and um, I'm a cat person. I love cats equally as I love my dog. So let's talk about cats here. Delinda in Las Vegas. Um, she emailed us at um, podcast at positively.com and she said, Hi, Victoria and Holly. Delinda from Las Vegas here, and I have a really good cat question for you. Since it came out recently with Infervention that you have cat knowledge as well. Yes. Yes. Uh, what is the best way to introduce a new cat to a cat that's already comfortable in your home? Can't really take them out to a common area like dogs to a dog park. So what's your suggestion? I just got two new cats. Luckily, they fit in well with the two previous cats, but I know this isn't always the case. So what do you think is the best way to do this? Any help would be appreciated. And I know that's a big issue. And actually, because my cat is 15, my other cat uh, passed about a year and a half ago and he was 20. So we, my husband and I have been talking about, should we get a kitten? Should we get another one? But I'm not so sure how George, the kind of cat of the household is going to take it. You know, cats are very territorial. Mm -hmm. And when you introduce another cat onto the territory, sometimes it doesn't go well. Right. And I would say you've got to take time. Don't just suddenly shove the two cats together and hope they get along because once those cats have fought, you know, it's very unlikely that they're going to establish a good relationship. So you do it slowly. And what, what I'd like to do is that I keep the dog, the cat separately in, um, see, I'm such a dog person. I'm like, (laughs) I keep the cat separate. Um, and one cat has a litter box and all the home in one room and the other cat that's the established cat has the rest of the, the house. And then what I'll do is I'll take the cat out of the cat room that I've made for the newcomer and allow the established cat to come into that room to sniff the bed of the new cat, to sniff the litter box, to get some information. And then... Um, but you don't let them see each other yet? N- not yet, okay. no. No, I just I allow scent to take over. Mm-hmm. Of course, cats have a very good sense of smell. And then what I do is um, I will have a divider, some sort of divider, either that's a plate of uh, a glass window. Um, if there is a, in, in an outdoor area that I have that, and at the outdoor areas are like a veranda or, um, some sort of porch or some sort of contained area that the cats can see each other through glass mm-hmm. or even through a baby gate and they can sniff each other's scent and they can take a look at each other. And, um, and then, if that goes okay, then I can start actively supervising cat interaction. And I will sometimes, when, even before doing that, I will take a treat, for example, and when 
uh, something that my established cat loves. And when it sees the newcomer, then I give the, the cat a treat. Or like catnip to... or something that makes him feel good. Yeah. How long would this process take? I mean, if you let that one cat into the room one time where the, the newcomer is, would that do it? Or might you have to do it for like a week? Does it take time? Because, you know, cats are pretty stubborn. Yeah, they are. And, you know, it, it all depends. I think mm-hmm. it all depends and you just monitor it yourself. And when you think that... Uh, I mean, I, I guess the first day I would maybe do it for a day or two days. <laughs> sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, okay. I don't know if they could hear that, but that was my stomach. That was... Feed me. <laughs> Victoria's looking was, around for her dog. <laughs> I heard this growl and I thought, oh my gosh, Sadie, what happened? <laughs> and it wasn't Sadie at all. It, it was, was Holly's Nobody feeds me around here. <laughs> Can I just, can we just say, okay, we're going to stop this because, because <sighs> we're just, now we're getting a little bit happy. of information, a little bit of information. Yeah. Holly's just been on a totally delayed, <laughs> awful American Airlines flight where they didn't feed her. She hasn't eaten anything at all. And that's, bless her, that's the reason why her stomach is rumbling. I just haven't rambling. eaten since yesterday. So, okay, um, let me just that. try finish this cat question. Yeah, I would introduce them when I thought the time was right, maybe mm-hmm. after a day or two. And then... I would have supervised interaction. And, you know, cats work it out pretty quickly. Oh, good. Yeah, and you can see people say, oh, if you shouldn't get two male cats together, you shouldn't get two female cats together. Look, there's been interactions. I've done introduced two female cats, two male cats, female and male cats. It just really depends on the individual cat's character and personality. And I always say, you know, have a couple of litter boxes as well because mm-hmm. cats can get territorial about where they eat and where they where they toilet. And so you might find that your existing cat starts to have litter box problems and doesn't use the litter box anymore or doesn't actually guard the litter box away from the new cat. So if you have two litter boxes in different situations, our producer's now laughing. Are you kidding? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Two different litter boxes in different situations, one for cat, one cat, one for another, and then another litter box somewhere else, then you... The existing cat can't guard every single litter box. Okay. Right. We just got to get to the end of this podcast because I don't think I can deal with it anymore. I'm okay. hot. Well, here's I'm sweaty. The <laughs> if only we need to get a video camera in here. Um, what we're going to do is, you know, we know there's a lot of cat behaviors. Pull it together, people. Pull it together. You haven't heard hungry people before. Trust me. Now I'm hungry. Now I'm gone from the stomach growling phase to the I am angry. I need food phase. So here's the deal. Uh, I know that there are a lot of cat behaviorists out there too, and I think we should give equal time to cats. So I'm going to suggest that maybe in a future podcast that we get somebody here to talk about cat behaviors, because even though it's very much like dogs, it's very much different in some ways. Oh, well, it is. Yes, oh, it, it is. And, you know, I mean, I've studied I studied both, but there is this, this, this one woman that I would like to have on, and uh, uh, I won't divulge her name right now, but she's the sort of preeminent cat behaviorist in this country. So we're going to do that equal time for cat lovers. Okay. Now we're going to end this because I feel laughter coming and I'm hungry. I am going to feed you right now. (laughs) I hope you can hear that stomach growling because that was ridiculous. Anyway, I apologize. But um, if you want to hear some not so crazy endings to podcasts, you can catch all of our podcasts on uh, positively.com slash podcast. That's our show page. You can find out everything there. Podcast at positively.com. You can email us questions. Um, and don't forget, if you're looking for a trainer, um, we have the VSPDT trainers at Positively.com trainers. So if you've got more questions um, and you can't wait for Victoria to answer them uh, on the podcast, find a trainer in your area because that's the best thing you can do. All right. I want something to eat now. Let's do it. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks for tuning in to Victoria Stillwell's Positively Podcast. For more information, visit Positively.com. Get connected on Facebook as Victoria Stillwell or follow her on Twitter at It's Me or the Dog. This Positively Podcast has been brought to you by Pets Ad Life, who encourage you to get a pal for your pet. Visit PetsAdLife.org or the Pets Ad Life Facebook page to learn more. Be sure to tune in next time as Victoria helps to change dogs' lives positively.